Welcome to Dusty Trophies, where we look back on iconic sporting performances. Keep your team in the series is pretty special. Some of the shots that he played out of this world. Cuts away for four. What an innings, what a play. From the far end, he bowls to Stokes who hammers it for four. And stands there with the back raised. I can't believe we've seen that. Hi everyone and welcome to Dusty Trophies. My name is Ian and we are beginning with something that isn't so dusty but works to inspire the podcast idea in a way as it was the most recent time in sport that I've been completely overcome with disbelief and emotion while watching. I still get goosebumps now actually listening to those commentary clips of course on Ben Stokes's 135 not out at Headingley last year to win the game for England and square out the Ashes series in a record-breaking fourth innings chase. It has been roundly praised as one of the greatest baskinings ever played, and it was one of the best days of my life. Uh, The aim in this pod is to relive some of our favourite days as fans and find stories which may inspire listeners to see the best of sport in places they wouldn't otherwise have looked. So we're starting with something quite recent and familiar to get the ball rolling, but whether you're a cricket fan or not, hopefully you'll be able to appreciate Stokes' effort in a new light by the end of this episode. Now, I'm obviously a big cricket fan, but perhaps if we start with Tom and then Dan, you guys might be able to introduce yourselves onto the pod by talking about your relationship with the game. Uh, I love cricket from minute one. Uh, I remember vividly going to Arundel Cricket Club, for those who have had the pleasure of going to one of the most beautiful grounds on earth, in my opinion. Uh, My granddad was the vice treasurer there before then becoming the treasurer. so my earliest memories of cricket are going down there, watching the likes of Makai and Tini bowl absolute wheels. Um, you know, the, the beauty of cricket is, is summed up, I think, by Arundel. In terms of playing, always back myself to make it as a pro when I was about 11. Um, when I was being outscored at the other end by Dan Chopping when I was in year seven, I thought, OK, perhaps this, uh, this could be lights okay. out for my career. Chops, what do you think? I love watching cricket. I think cricket's a great sport. I think it, you know, epitomizes the kind of romantic side of England and, you know, the rolling green fields and stuff. But I was always that kid playing cricket when I I was doing it because all my mates were doing it. I, I was lucky enough to have a dad that bought me all the equipment. Unfortunately, I was terrible. I tried all the positions. I think I tried spin bowling, <laughs> I tried keeper, <laughs> I tried batsman. I hated fielding because it hurt my hands catching the ball. Um, but I, l- I love watching it. I think it's great, especially this most recent um, Cricket World Cup. I was England, that England, New Zealand was just incredible. But it, it, it's a great sport in many senses of word sport. We're fortunate enough to live in London, so places like the Oval and the other one in North London. <laughs> <laughs> that, that sums the up a lot. Cricket, that's absolute blasphemy. <laughs> the... You can, you can do Lord. it. You can, oh, we were going to do it. it. We were gonna it. <laughs> that's great. But yeah, definitely, you, you can't help but be sucked into sporting events in London because, you know, I don't, don't know if this is a sign of our alcoholism, but there's pubs everywhere and whenever you walk past them, they're all blaring out the TVs, so you can't stop yourself from going in. The fact that, as Dan, you're not really a huge cricket watcher, 
uh, like I know me and Tom are. Um, this was, you know, this was the plan basically for me to be any anytime England's got a home World Cup and they, you know, the pubs in London are showing it, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, um, they planned this whole kind of thing as a pretty much a golden summer, um, and they've made bigger with the first game of cricket that was on free to air TV since 2005 Ashes was that World Cup final that was aired like jointly on Sky Sports and Channel Four, and um, like the ECB chairman Tom Harrison said in late 2018 that that summer would be a once-in-a-generation opportunity to build an even bigger following for all formats of the game. So I just think like, by the time we get to Headingley, part one will be completed with the World Cup, with Stokes the hero in the final, and he's the cricketer for England in 2019. That's what Hussein says. It's tricky to come to a conclusion, I suppose, because we were at very different ages for 2005 and 2018. But for you, Ian, would you argue that this summer was even more successful for the English game than perhaps Vaughan's side in 05? I think what could be easily forgotten about this summer, especially as we're only really talking about the Headingley Test, and we can't forget that Ben Stokes said it all means nothing unless we win the Ashes now, is that Australia did retain the Ashes. Um and it's almost it's almost a testament to how much that this summer meant the fact that everyone just kind of forgot about that that we drew the ashes 2-2 and australia took them home i don't think it matters too much on top of the world cup win that we actually didn't win the ashes if you know what i mean uh, ben stokes has become kind of from i mean we'll go into this later but he's come come from like a national pariah to a national treasure all over the front pages for the wrong reasons one thing and then next he's you know, doing like viral fitness challenges through the coronavirus lockdown and stuff like this. Because the sport, sport loves as much as probably cricket goes, oh, no, he shouldn't be in the papers. But then that all builds to the whole character. There. I mean, is that, again, possibly, has cricket lacked that naughty edge, that character that possibly football and rugby have? Yeah, I, I mean, I'd argue in any walk of life, a, a cheeky chappy always does well. Uh, providing that they produce the goods in the end. You're right. I, I, I'd argue that England probably always has had a, a naughty boy. If you look back at Flintoff as the all-rounder and both of them being, uh, I don't want to tarnish the man's name, but enjoying a pint or two. Um, don't, we, don't we all? You're right. Shane Warne often plastered over the back, back pages uh, and the front, for that matter. KP as well. I'd argue KP wasn't necessarily a naughty boy, but he did have that, that flair and arrogance about him which made him good news. So I do feel that game that often requires a lot of patience to watch, particularly for those that aren't a fan of cricket, you do need that that, that cowboy. Yeah, it comes it comes back of course to what you were saying earlier about cricket, Dan, with like, you know, the English green and pleasant land and stuff like that. It's got a very tied in ideals with that kind of idea of gentlemanliness and stuff like that and whenever there's a cricketing kind of bad boy then i think that's what kind of the tabloids absolutely love is that oh yeah he's he's not an english he's not you know a top hat wearing monocle wearing public school educated kind of country gent he's, he's he plays cricket and he's like also loves a pint i think the kind of juxtaposition of that and the kind of you know the, the cricketing bad boy i think itself is kind of something that people are are drawn to as a story. And I think England has always had this kind of, it's always had this need for this one big player to be the centre of the team. It's kind of, it's, it's it's the same with everything where, 
you know, casual fans, they won't know much about they won't know much about cricket, but they'll know about Flintoff, they'll know about Stokes. They won't necessarily know yeah. like much about Joe Root even, even though he's the captain. Because he's not really front page yeah. front page material. And perhaps that's why people well, a lot of the country never took to people like Alistair Cook because, you know, Cook, public school boy, went to Bedford. He's almost deemed as, as the elite. Yeah. Um, and, and Cook is profoundly quite uninteresting to, you know, the salacious yeah. headline writers in the press. You know, he doesn't have mm. social media. He's pretty sort of sin-free in his like private life, just goes back and lambs in his, in his winters and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, I think someone who you know will get into will get into Stokes on his on his nights out and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, he, he's he's much more captivating of the public eye, and I think it's it's so fitting that he was you know the cricketing superhero and the kind of the off field superhero at the same time um, throughout 2019. Yeah, so Ian. I think for the for the listeners, it'd be useful to get a bit more of a background story about the man himself. Where did Ben Stokes come from? You know, what made this occasion so momentous with everything that came before it? I, I have I have some information about that actually, Tom. Thank you for thank you for that leading question. So just just to sort of give some background to Stokes' own story, um, I'll take it right back to to Headingley in 2019, if I may, in that 67 first inning score uh stokes you may remember was one of the biggest villains of that by getting out of single figures and fishing at an extremely wide delivery and cutting it to sort of third or fourth slip i think but he he makes up for this later that day so day two this huge batting collapse for england we got up to 67 and then after tea ben stokes came back and bowled for 15 consecutive overs as the only all-rounder in the side to save joffrey archer's legs from cramp and he actually takes the best bowling figures of that innings for England of three fifty six, and it comes back to this like, England's idea with England's idea of an all rounder. England have been looking to replace Flintoff since two thousand and five Ashes, and I dug up an old piece on on his bowling on Stokes' bowling from Jonathan Liu in twenty seventeen after Stokes took six of twenty two against the West Indies. And he says uh, the popular misconception of Stokes as an abrasive hit the deck bowler endures, one nourished by his burly frame, confrontational attitude and perhaps even English cricket's hankering for an all-conquering Flintoff-sized superhero. Perhaps a more appropriate comparison is actually with 1980s Ian Botham, a player whose gargantuan personality masked the fact that he was largely a conventional English-style swing bowler. Even when he's like trying to be deflected away from Flintoff-sized kind of greatness, the next comparison is Botham, and English cricket is always looking for this one superhero to, to bail them out. Um, and he gets kind of typecast in that, you know, he wants to be the big hero and he wants to be the man delivering on the big occasions, but he can't really escape it. Um, and on the batting side, Stokes gets typecast as well. So he hit 256 not out against Africa, uh, where he absolutely took them apart. And he's sort of, you know, got huge abilities as a limited overs cricketer. So he's kind of, his, his book, for heaven's sake, was called Firestarter. And he kind of fed into this fed into this image of like, I am the man. Uh, and it all changed in September 2017 outside of Bristol nightclub. The, the, story, the story goes that there was some homophobic abuse that he was, he was, he was protecting people from. And the v- video went viral from The Sun about him like, you know, smacking this guy outside onto the pavement. 
speculation before the trial leads him to be left out of the Ashes series that winter, where he was viewed as kind of the main threat. The Aussies were most fearful of Stokes himself. Uh, Stokes is left out of that. England lose 4-0 down under. It's completely humiliating. And Stokes is like gently weaned back into the side after that until he's cleared of wrongdoing um, in his trial. In an interview with Crick Enfield on April 2019, he said, it sounds silly, but could Bristol have been the best thing that ever happened to me? Who knows, but maybe in terms of my way of thinking. No matter what happens in life with me now, the Bristol thing will always be there. It's something I'll always carry with me. So I think that really changed him as a person. His, his approach to cricket kind of changed from going out and eating everyone alive to kind of knowing your role and really applying yourself a lot more. To come back from an episode like that, as you said, he was the villain, not just of English cricket, but of English sport. Would you argue he's got the greatest mentality of any living sportsman at the moment? I think a lot of sportsmen have got great mentality. I think Stokes is just like, he's got that very simple mentality of just, he wants to be there on the big stage and he wants to get the job done. But he doesn't really think, he doesn't really let anything else cloud his judgment. So I think the greatest mentality could be the fact that he's the most simple and clear headed when he's out there. He just doesn't let anything distract him. I remember... Ian, you'll go into this, but uh, when he hit the boundary to take him to his century, I hope I'm not spoiling anything there, <laughs> he didn't even raise his bat, which, fair enough, that, that's commonplace if someone's chasing a large total and they don't want to celebrate. But there was no smugness about it. Often you see someone, they hit 100 in a, in a losing cause. I think Ma- Matthew Wade did it, perhaps. Um... And they almost have that smugness of, I'm not going to raise my bat. Uh, whereas for Stokes, it just felt like this is his calling. He he almost had no acknowledgement of that. It's quite difficult to convey. Yeah. To Stokes, all he cared about was a task. He needed 135-ish runs to carry him over the line once Jack Leach came in. And uh, he said he was trying to sort of take in what he'd achieved at the end. But he didn't. He, you could tell that he like couldn't really breathe until he got the job done, uh, and he kind of like his his post match interview is. I think it's it's so simple where he says, "Don't know, never give up, not over till it's over." When Leachy came in, it was clear what had to be done. Just saying five and one, um, and he says it's a top two feeling he's had in his career. And there's a great match report by uh, Vish Antaraja now at Independent, but this was for I think Crick Buzz, and he says. Across sports, great feats are spoken of by the protagonists with almost robotic recall. The air is still, the crowd mute, the colours monochrome, all dulled by the matter at hand. In keeping, Ben Stokes' eighth test hundred and second in as many Ashes tests was treated as a nuisance and shrugged off like a cold call about PPI. And like when, when he reached that hundred, he did not care at all that he got to hundred. And he mm. did, it, was a, it was a ridiculous pull shot to like mid-on off Josh, Hazel, yeah. Josh Hazelwood. Like watching, watching the watching the highlights, he absolutely smacks it. And he just, just like there's people celebrating, going, going wild around him, and he just, he just zones in. And there's lots of quotes from Stokes after the match where he says he was just so in the zone he couldn't really think about the fact he'd got to a hundred. He just wanted to keep going, and yeah, I, I just think it's that elite mentality. Um, it's it, mm. it got talked about a lot of the time, but yeah, I don't think it touched on enough. I know Dan, what, what do you think about? Would you celebrate that 100 if you got there? Would you be, would you be thinking about it? 
I think it would be incredibly difficult to not think about it, but it's kind of a fool's effort to celebrate because, like you said, there's there's more to come and you'd make yourself look a bit foolish if you did celebrate and then get out the next ball. Whenever I watch cricket, I'm amazed at... I'm an incredibly imp- impatient person and I think the level of patience in a cricketer, especially test cricketer, is just immense. And it's that idea of... And I guess from a bowler's point of view, it's trying to um, tease that impatience out of a, a batsman by playing balls to make them sh- um, play impatiently, I guess. Um, but I remember watching the most recent um, test with South Africa. The, the commentators were talking about the different batsmen. I think it was... I'm rubbish with cricketers' names. Who's Who's the keeper? Not the ginger fella. Butler. Butler. He, am I right in thinking he's not strictly a test cricketer? Yeah. Yeah, and they were kind of, he was number six. He probably would have been seven at that time, yeah. But Yeah. So, and it was just interesting to kind of see someone, like how he kind of holds himself and plays shots. And, you know, I guess he has a certain job opposed to someone at Rory. Rory Burns. What's his chops? Burns, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but if, we're, if we're on the topic of patience, Ian, you may correct me on this, but I believe his first boundary came on the 74th ball of the innings. Yep. So Stokes was two off 50 overnight and he was three off 73 or 74, um, which is a, a, an absurdly low strike rate. And then, yeah, he, I think he hit, his, he hit his first four in the morning. Uh, went to sort of seven off seventy five or something like that. So, so, so he was in for a whole day. Not, 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 oh, not so a whole day. He was not yeah, whole he was day. In for, he was in for seventy three balls before he hit more than three runs. Wow! So that that's in, this, know, incredible. This, yeah, this, this was all done. This was all done the night before, basically. So England was set this mammoth, mammoth total of three hundred and fifty seven. Three hundred fifty nine, I believe. There we go. Halfway through um, day three, that they are set this. So there's. In the in the four innings game of cricket and Test cricket, it has to be completed over five days. It's gorgeous forecast for the Sunday and Monday at Headingley, so they're never going to get rained off. So England's normal options would either be to chase down 357 runs, which is more than been made in a single innings before in that match, or bat out for two and a half days, which is impossible because you just can't last that long. Um, so England were trying to get yeah, England was trying to get to 358 higher than England had ever chased in tests and if successful it'd be in the top 10 in history of all time there's a great piece I read from from Jared Kimber uh, where it says like chases of over 300 are actually ridiculously difficult there's a four and a half percent success rate overall of uh, 300 plus chases and it's gone down to 3.2 percent in the last decade bloody hell and there's been only three instances of teams scoring fewer than 67 runs in innings in a test they ended up winning and they were all in the 1880s um and that, that, that's some that's some headline stats i actually did some of my own stat digging uh just to prove how bad england are at chasing in the fourth innings that was in the 1880s did you say yeah yeah the last time a team scored fewer than 70 in, in any innings imagine playing one. cricket in the 1880s <laughs> So yeah, and, and all of I looked through all of England's test wins since 2015. So this modern England side with, you know, let's, I, I chose 2015 as a kind of like, their kind of one day transformation where they turned into all attacking, all singing, all dancing hitters, basically. And 21 were by runs and five were by wickets. Uh, and just to explain that, 
it means that only five times have we been the chasing team in the fourth innings and and won in the last in the last five years and 21 times we've been the kind of team that batted first and set the total and the previous win by less than five wickets was in Trent Ridge 2005 so anytime so these these nominal chases of you know 100 or something like that in the last innings where you get there quite easily and you've you've done the hard work in the game to set that win up they've only done that five times since 2015 and yeah the previous win by less than five wickets were actually got quite tight towards the end was Trent Bridge 2005 and that was when they were chasing 129 to win so chasing 358 is absolutely ridiculous yeah i remember warn i suppose there was there was that feeling wasn't there that we needed about 100, 100 odd to win, or 150 or whatever, and we were still four down before Bairstow then departed. And there was that inevitability that England were just going to be rolled over again, which is what has happened so many times when we're chasing down totals in the fourth innings. Um, and then we must have lost four or five quick wickets in before the final partnership. I mean, I know that Joffrey Archer had a brief cameo, um, but there was that sense of, bloody hell how yeah. have England blown this again despite it being a, a tricky total it looked well under control uh, I mean I'm sure that's going to be a running theme with all of these podcasts when we end up talking about England but that is a that is something we've grown to become immune to or numb to in in British English sport is that idea of getting to a, a relatively good level and going oh bloody hell we've we've thrown this in the bin that's that's the thing I find when I watch when I watch England England's cricket team. I don't know why it's different for me watching for watching England's cricket team, but the hope is never actually extinguished. I, I never I never actually feel like the hope is lost for, for for English for English cricket. I mean, there's um I found I found a quote um this this is in that Jared Kimber piece where he says on these on these big chases where he says there's a noise that cricket fans make in chases like this as if cricket's global consciousness tightens at once and it squeaks. In the test chase, partnerships bring extra sense of insurance. Fans of the chasing side dare to dream and bowling fans panic and cricket seems to be on the verge of making something magical happen. So whenever there's a chase in this fight in this last innings, like both sides fear the worst. And there's always that hope that never kind of quite goes down. And I always had that through watching this. It's something I always do, particularly with England. You look down the batting order and you think, okay, Joss Butler, he could add 30. Chris Wokes on a good day, he could add 30. You, st- <laughs> you think about Broad and you think, okay, Broad could get 20. Obviously, we, we forget the fact that you can barely hold a bat these days. Okay, that's actually a great chance for me to just jump in and go through a quick recap of that last afternoon just before we talk more about why it was so special. So all hope is on Stokes and Root in the morning, but Root is out very quickly and Bairstow decides to come in and counterattack, upping the scoring rate with Stokes before getting out for 30-ish. Butler is then run out by Stokes after a big mix-up and Wokes falls cheaply after him. Broad is out on his second ball after Joffre Archer runs out of luck trying to smash the ball all over the place. And when Leach comes in as the last man with over 70 runs needed, that's when the Stokes magic really, really starts. So firstly, offline, two big hits down the ground and then that ridiculous reverse sweep shot into the stands. Then he targets Australia's seamers, uh, he pulls, hooks, scoops into the boundary, uh, cruising to a century on his way, as we mentioned earlier. With two runs left to win, there's another running mix-up that leaves Leach well short of its ground, but Lyon, Australian spinner, misses a chance to run him out. The very next ball, it looks like he's trapped Stokes LBW, but the umpire doesn't give it out and Australia are out of reviews for the umpire's decisions. 
Uh, the very next over, Leach gets his single to leave Stokes to hit the winning runs uh, with that famous four through the covers. So guys, one thing I've found interesting uh, since August as well is watching the test on Amazon Prime. Uh, Justin Langer, the Australian coach, says from the very start of the day that Stokes is the man they need to get out. And I thought Root was our best hope in the morning, but it shows how wrong I was. Uh, my personal memory of that day is just the roller coaster of losing hope and then regaining it so many times that made it special and also the complete virtuosity of that last hour from Stokes and how surreal it was. Uh, from your perspective, guys, what I'd like to ask you is, with all that luck at the end being weirdly similar to the fortune in the World Cup final for England, as well as Stokes being there, was there a shining light on England that day and through the whole summer? Tom? I have a confession to make. I didn't actually watch it live. Oh, no. <laughs> I'll explain why. So, been watching it all morning, deeply engrossed in it, as you can imagine. Got to the point where Bairstow had just got out and I thought um, we had to go and visit my girlfriend's grandma and I thought okay these guys are going to chirp for a little bit nothing's going to happen for an hour so now's a good time to do it we had to do it I I believe it was a Sunday so got to her care home um, and (laughs) the whole journey due to traffic and, and everything else took about two hours so I was sat there trying to refresh my phone but also trying not to look like a complete arsehole in a care home just refreshing twitter 24 <laughs> 7 um i think that's that's a universal experience of following sport is kind of doing it when it's not quite socially yeah. acceptable to absolutely to but, but but i managed to get the the info coming through that we were eight down at a lot of runs and i just thought if, if you know minus six bleaters but that's that's game over and i almost put it into my put it into the back of my head but I was still livid uh, and then walking out desperately scrolling trying to get internet found it saw 300 saw nine saw we were for nine so that was the first thing I noticed the wickets column and I thought okay is it still playing to jump straight on sky go I didn't even bother looking at the rest of it and then obviously I saw that you know everyone was going mental and I just thought, I can't believe I've just missed one of the greatest sporting moments of all time. Phoned my dad straight away and I said, I want you to talk me through every ball uh, on my on my journey home. And then obviously as soon as I got in, it was just repeat, repeat, repeat. And even now we're in lockdown. I must have watched it 10 times over the past couple of weeks. I, I think I must be well into triple figures in terms of how many times I've watched that innings. Dan, how did you experience that? Um, that highlights on YouTube, I'm afraid. Bloody <laughs> do, 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 do you remember? Do you remember what the Sunday, what the Sunday had had in store for you? Um, do you remember where you were? Probably a good old roast somewhere. But um, I'm, like I said, I love cricket. Cut me open, it's cricket. <laughs> um, but on that occasion, I wasn't watching. <laughs> I want to just jump back to something you said earlier um, about Stokes. He said he wasn't nervous at all. In all sports, there's there's the power of the underdog. And to get in that position, you almost have to 
accept you can't win. This isn't possible. And then once you've accepted that, you suddenly get this power. It's like, well, there's nothing to lose. I'm going to just try things, possibly push things, play differently, etc. that I've never done before. And once you suddenly have that sporting freedom, you you can start to achieve things not possible from the rigid structure of how you would normally play as a team. And there was then that level when Australia sensed this kind of the underdog coming through. It's like Liverpool and Barcelona, that game. Barcelona knew as soon as they felt that, that power of the underdog, that impossible task suddenly becoming that little bit more possible, you can almost pick at the point in the game when it's like, this is done. The underdog, it, they're going to do it. Yeah. So was that... Did you notice that watching? Yeah, having been the only one apparently that w- of the three of us that watched it live, I was uh, I was sat at home on the couch with my dad, and I was sort of very outwardly expressing the fact that, you know, as as Joffre, you know, hold out, and then as Broad got out with a second ball, and then Jack Leach comes in. I know he got ninety two as a night watchman against Ireland, <laughs> but you know, th- there's I think t- t- yeah, I-, I was I was very outwardly expressing, oh, it's over. And I was almost, I was almost thinking about sort of turning off and watching something else. But obviously, I, I was never going to do that because inside, I, I just, I'd seen what the way Stokes had played up to that point, and I knew that there was a very faint possibility of being able to talk about this for decades and even bloody start a podcast on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no. Um. So what, what I was going to say was the fact that, um, yeah, the 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 real electricity when you, you get watching live sport is when the momentum shifts yeah. and when the atmosphere shifts and you see the. Australian players starting to look nervous and you see kind of Hazelwood like turn around and think like just where the hell am I going to bowl to this guy and running out of ideas exactly and what what you touched on there with like the kind of that freedom that you get from almost there being a no hope situation Dan I don't think Stokes ever felt that but I think that's definitely applicable to Jack Leach I mean number 11 batsman in cricket there's never anything expected of them so they could only like if so, if so, if Jack Leach had gone gone and like got out with sixty runs needed, no one would have blamed him for the for the defeat. You know, but he had, he had a very factors. specific job though, didn't he? Yeah, he he's so, just there to block a ball block a ball and over, and then he he nearly sort of um, you know that that kind of ridiculous ridiculous run out chance where Lyon fumbled it. It was Leach kind of suicidally running down the wicket. And then running back, and there was—I I don't know if you saw the clip from the uh, the Sky Sports rewatch they did over Zoom, Tom, where uh, they replayed that moment, and Joe Root was watching it with like Stokes and Rob Key and Nasu Hussain. He said like the look that Stokes gives Leach when he's like sheepishly just put, putting his back back down his ground after Lion fumbles is a look of like pure animal hatred. Just like, did you just ruin? Mm. Did you just nearly ruin this? And it's just yeah, that kind of. He he trusted he trusted Jack Leach to do the job, and he trusted himself to do the job. But there was there was times when he couldn't even watch the balls that Jack Leach was facing. He couldn't even watch from the other end. And there's there was um so I'm going to go into something else completely tangentially here. But um, listening to to what James Anderson had to say about about that final kind of day was really kind of um was really kind of poignant for me because he said that. Any any kind of sport, I mean, he's one of the greatest bowlers ever, and he said he hated watching it, and he'd much rather have been out there as a number eleven, playing in it because you can actually control it when you're when you're in it, you know. Yeah, and what what echoes that as well is Justin Langer 
in that the test series on Amazon Prime, he talks about how he was never fit. He was he was never fearful as a batsman, despite going out to open the batting, facing I don't know, Shahbaktar bowling a hundred mile an hour rockets at his head. He was never scared. But you can see in that documentary that his head is all over the place. Him and Steve Smith yeah. charging around that 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 changing room. Yeah, I mean, um, and they're, they're hopeless. The way Anderson describes the kind of the England dressing room, as as the to- as the total needed gets smaller and smaller and smaller, is really quite amazing. So he says, you know, English English cricket and particularly cricket, I think as well, is a very very superstitious sport. Where so as soon as as soon as that last person, I know I I was sitting at home and not not moving from the couch. I needed I needed a piss desperately for about an hour, and had to wait for like an advert break because I didn't want to go between balls. He said, like Joe Root was sat in the same sat in the same part of the changing room. Joe Denley was going to the toilet when um when Stokes just before Stokes hit the first of two six off Jack Leach, so he had to remain in the toilet for the rest of the innings in the in the dressing room. And everyone because because they, they couldn't watch on the screen to see what was happening, so no one was actually watching what was happening on the pitch because no one was watching it when Leach originally went out. He said, yeah, Joe Root was standing up and sitting down. Joe Denley was back in the toilets. Stuart Broad was why on the was he, ma- was Why on the was he allowed, not allowed out of the toilet? Because like a superstition is that you can't you can't move. Yeah. If you move, then they'll get out, kind of thing. So if if, right. if anyone watching does anything different to what went right the last ball, then the next ball will kind of go wrong. And so yeah, Anderson's basically saying that the entire England dressing room is repeating the same ticks over and over and over again for about an hour and a half. <laughs> it involves Joe Denny being stuck in the toilet and Stuart Broad being stuck on a massage chair in the in the massage room. Presumably, Trevor Bayliss was just sat there, not looking remotely asked about anything. <laughs> oh yeah, he was out of a job anyway, wasn't he? So doesn't matter to him. But yeah, he says you're rather you're rather the one out there because you have no nerves. And like even even Stokes, when he was out there, he couldn't even watch. He couldn't even watch Leach batting. He was like sort of sat sat at the end, like head down. Like just praying that he survived the ball, like just going the crowd noise, and you know, yeah, just the kind of the emotions that that, that squad went through. Um, another thing Anderson says in that podcast is he said um, at the end of the at the end of the day, after all the media and stuff had been done, they just watched a replay of it, and there was like a nice little patter of applause around the dressing room for Stokes, like one more time. They, you know, they went out onto the onto the ground again, and Jack Leach got to like relive the single that he hit to make the scores level and stuff like that. It all just ties together so nicely, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, that concludes episode one of Dusty Trophies. As you could probably tell, it was our first attempt at a podcast. However, please do look out for the improvements as we continue through the series. That brings me on to next week, where we'll take a look at David Beckham's match-drawing performance against Greece in the 2001 World Cup qualifiers. It includes that free kick that really did shake the world. But that's it for now. Thank you very much for listening. See you next week. Bye-bye.